0: Can an ancient story that feels so much like maybe myth or otherworldly, can it still speak to us today? The answer is yes. Let me go back for those of you who haven't been with us over the last several weeks. This is the fourth message in a, a series through Ezra, and we will continue through Nehemiah. Uh, Lord willing, we'll take a break between chapters 6 and 7 of of Ezra. We'll talk about the uh, marvelous way God used a young lady named Esther, raised her up for such a time as that to save her people. But after 70 years of exile in captivity, now let me remind you, this exile, in case you haven't done the, the, the study historically, was not punishment. These are the covenant people of God. And so God does not punish His covenant people. He disciplines them. Now, I will admit that in my life, when God has disciplined me, lovingly disciplined me, it has felt sometimes like punishment. Can I get an amen? That's true. Sometimes God, in His mercy and in His love, Just flat wears us out, and we need it. That's what he was doing with Israel 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And, And he miraculously, we've seen this in the last couple of weeks, brings a remnant out of Babylon to the promised land of Judah. Why? Because the remnant, we said this last week, now get a picture of this. Roughly 4% of the population, 42,000, out of a probable population in Babylon of 1 million people, they heard the message and they responded to the message. That's not rocket science. And and I'm going to be talking to you today, and, and pointedly, I hope, As pointedly as the Scriptures will get and as I can make them, that I will be pointing out that for those of us who've been under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we need to do first of all is hear, and then we need to respond to the offer of freedom. They they made the effort, and it was an effort. I remind you that it was nine hundred miles from Babylon back to Judah. And it was not a superhighway. It was a hard, hard journey. They made it as near as we can tell historically, if you go back and look at some of the other passages that talk about this, They did that journey incredibly. Now, this is uh, roughly 42,000-plus people. There are men, women, children. There are animals. There are all kinds of things going on there. They made it in roughly four months. Now, do the math. At seven and a half miles a day, I walk a mile around my block, and I'm tired. (laughs) They walked probably seven and a half miles. I think they wanted to get there. I wonder if they came up to Zerubbabel like some of our kids do on trips. Are we there yet? There's a reason why. We said this last week. Look at this. I want you to hear this. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. Basically, they wanted to get back, the remnant did, because they couldn't worship in Babylon, all right? We, we get a picture of this in Psalm 137, we talked about this last week, we'll go back to it. Here they were, it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. We remembered Zion. We, we remembered that place of worship, which, by the way, had been destroyed. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. They just didn't even want to play music. For there, our captors required of us songs and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They couldn't worship in Babylon. Now, one of the things that I'm reminded of is, if you'll do a cross-reference, not right here, but if you'll think about some of the things that went on to verify this, go back to the book of Daniel, and you'll see that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that that it's a picture of these Jews, this remnant, living in a foreign land, and they worshipped. Now, don't get me wrong, they worshipped, and you can... Two in different places, but the whole point is they could not worship as God had appointed in Babylon. And this is real history, but it's also a picture of a lot of Christians that I know. Could it be a picture of some of you? Is this you? Let me just say this to you. You can't, listen, you can't worship in Babylon. Now, I'm taking that picture and we're going to see in three movements here in just a minute the reality of that. But you can't worship in Babylon while you're far away from God, while you're a captive to sin and there are tons of people, please hear this, that profess faith in Christ who think that they can. Do you know what the word, the name Babylon means? Do you know where it came from? It came from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. So if you're a resident, if, if, if you're a, a resident of Babylon, Meaning, if you were born there, and this is a picture of the world, Babylon means gateway to the gods. Boy, isn't that instructive. The world says there are a lot of ways to get to God. We're going to get to God. God's name for Babylon is confusion. To confuse by mixing. Fast forward to the New Testament. Did Jesus ever talk talk about lukewarm Christians? Is that a problem in the church today? Is that a problem in heritage? Now, when John was speaking in the book of Revelation, he was speaking to the whole church. I'm sure not everybody in that church was lukewarm, but the church had become lukewarm. They had left their first love. Get that? I, I've tried it. Listen, students, please, please hear me. And others, maybe older adults, one foot in Babylon and the other foot you try to put into the presence of God. And it just doesn't work. Anybody ever heard the term backslide? Got any backslidden Christians in here today? Oh, no hands thought I might catch somebody half asleep, and I better raise my hand. Now, that's an old term. I don't know if you students understand the concept of backsliding, but when I was younger, we would always hear about there there are Christians, you know, they're following after the Lord, then there are lost people, then there are backslidden Christians. Maybe the jury is still out. We we won't go there. It's not the the whole theme of the sermon. But let me show you a picture of backsliding. Here I am with God, okay? I'm here, and I'm a Christian, and this is possible. It happened to, to King David. And all of a sudden, there's God. I begin to make small defections back to Babylon. That's where I came from, okay? And I make it. Over here, I'll try not to back off the stage. And look at how far I am from God because I've done what? I've backslidden. Look at the distance. And that would be an accurate description of maybe even someone in the church, and outwardly you look okay, but you you look at your heart, and deep down inside, you know you've made those defections back to Babylon, and you're trying to worship, and somehow it it just doesn't work, it doesn't catch, that's why. But let me show you something else, and I think this is far more common, and this is what we're going to try to get at today. Let's say you're with the Lord here, and the Lord says, follow me. By the way, does the Lord say to every one of us, follow him? How, how often are we to follow him? Luke 9, 23. If any man wishes to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But let's say that kind of like maybe some of those people in Babylon did, they got comfortable and God says, I want you to follow me, but we don't. We should take a step here, and we should take a step here, but we're back here. Now look at this. The distance between me and where God is, the presence of God, is just as big as if I had backslidden from not doing anything bad or wrong necessarily, except that I just didn't follow God. Do you see why John said to the church, you've left your first love? You haven't followed me? Or you're lukewarm? Sometimes that happens over time. Sometimes it happens in an instant. And here's the thing that I've discovered, maybe some of you have too. A moment unrepented of, now you're still a believer, but you've not repented of that. A moment unrepented of becomes a day, and a day becomes a week, and a week becomes a month, and a month becomes a year, and a year becomes 70 years. And there are some Christians that I know that have been in Babylon in captivity for a long, long time. And God sends his prophets, he sends his word, and he says, I want you to respond to me. He says, I want you to stop sliding back to where, well, let's just look at it from what the prophets did with the people in Babylon. This is from 2 Chronicles. We, We see this right before Ezra. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. Again, step by step, they got into that place. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. God's so merciful. The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers, and it's recorded right here because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That's key. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. Despising his words. Oh, that preacher. He's just an old, he's just ancient. He's an old cadre. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Those guys, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God Rose against his people. Now, this is the precursor to the 70 years of captivity until there was no remedy. And all I would say to you stop, stop sliding. Stop sliding until the place where there is no remedy. Now, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation, that just means you get yourself into captivity. We're going to see a wonderful promise at the end of this. By the way, I haven't even gotten to the first point. And the first point's going to be long like it always is. I am not talking about turning over a new leaf. God help us. I'm not talking about, oh, I'll try to do better. No, 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 no. I'm talking about first step. Hear God. Second step, respond and get out of Babylon. Come home for what you were really created. And once you do that, that 42,000, they did that. Then he said, I want you to get to work on some other things. I've divided chapter 3 into three parts to talk about those things. So here we go. Strap your seatbelts on because we're going to run today through this. You know what this is? This is God's promise for his covenant people. And you've said, I want to get out of my Babylon, whatever it might be. I want to get out of captivity. I feel like I've been in exile. Okay? There are several things that you need to do. These are for God's covenant people. These are not only applications, they're personal appeals. Let's look at the first one, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to try to read through this so you can get a feel. I won't comment about everything. There's not time, but we're going to comment about the things that need to be focused on. When the seventh month came, that is so huge. The seventh month was extremely significant in the life of Israel. The children of Israel were in the towns. They'd gotten there. They'd each gone to their own hometown. Look at this. The people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. That should say something, and we'll come at the end to say something about the unity of the church. They came together as one man. Seems to me uh, the Apostle Paul said something about that in Ephesians chapter 2. He's made the two into one new man. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God in Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Why? Because that's what God's Word told them to do. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar on its place for fear of them was on them because of the peoples of the land. I, I, that's, that's a sermon in itself. Don't fear the peoples of the land. Look to God. That's what they were doing. To, and it says, and they offered, they did what they set out to do, offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept the Feast of Booths. Now, there have been three things that have happened right there. As it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, offerings at the new moon, and at the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. You were created with a purpose. What is that purpose? To worship. Building the temple was important. Laying the foundation was important, but there was something that came first. Rebuild the altar. We know our first priority ought to be to worship God in His temple, with His people, but there's something that has to happen. So verse 1 tells us in the seventh month, I said this was significant. There were three important gatherings that the law of Moses talked about. The Feast of Trumpets. Now, it doesn't say that there, but it does say that they gathered together. That was probably the Feast of Trumpets. Second was the Day of Atonement. Third was the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. Not booze, but booths. Some people that are sleeping might hear the Feast of Booths, and you're all over that. Feast of booths, tabernacles. They could have done a lot of things, but what did they do? They got back to the most important thing. Why? Because the altar signified the presence of God. Here's what they were trying to do. I, I, I don't want to do too much New Testament. You remember the Old Testament is a shadow. So, there are some things that don't exactly translate, but to the Jew, that's why they couldn't worship in Babylon. The presence of God was at the altar. Go back to Exodus, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, there I will meet you. Are you catching the symbolism maybe? The offering on the altar, he says, I'm going to meet with you there, the people of Israel. It shall be sanctified by my glory. They met with God at the altar. It was at the altar that they found acceptance through the atoning work of the, did you hear how I emphasized it? The burnt offering. What is significant about the burnt offering? totally consumed. So not only did they need to get in the presence of God, they need to find the acceptance from the Lord through the atoning blood, the burnt offerings that were totally consumed on the altar. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. I, I, I just, I just got to get ahead of myself. Was Christ completely consumed on the cross? Is it there that we were made acceptable? So the offering was completely consumed, a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, do some of you remember when we studied through Leviticus? What can you get out of Leviticus? You can get a lot about offerings, the burnt offering. Sixteen times it talks about the offering presented to God being a pleasing aroma. God looks at that offering and he's pleased with it. Now, again, remember, these are all shadows. They're shadows. And they point to someone. We jump to Colossians chapter two. Therefore, don't get hung up. We just been talking about the feasts in the seventh month and what went on there. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you with questions about food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Who is the atoning sacrifice? That's what that word, propitiation, means. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. He Himself, Jesus, is the pleasing aroma to God, not the blood of goats and bulls. And folks, that's, that's the gospel. We had our, we're having our membership matters. We had a great group in there. I was in there this morning. And we go through the gospel. It's one of the big things that we do. And I I told them that we believe here in, these are big words, theological words, but they mean something. The penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. He is punished, he was punished by God as a substitute for us in our place to turn away the wrath of God. Worship. Worship always starts with this. So, can, can I just say this to, I know most of you, I, I see you, I, I know that you're believers in, you're followers of Jesus Christ. Everybody in the world is either going to put their trust and their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ as the one who was punished in our place for our sins that will turn away the wrath of God and whoever does not, will pay for their own sins throughout eternity from God in the lake of fire. That not only is a sobering thought for the millions and millions who are perishing all around us every day, but that's also an encouragement. You see, the gospel is not just for a one-time thing that happened back then. It's for every day. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now watch this. By what? What's the foundation of his appeal? The mercies of God. The mercies of God that gave his son as the atoning sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God for you. At the end of the service... I give a call, always do, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, young or old, it doesn't matter. If you hear His voice today, you respond and you will be saved. We've had a few people that have left our church because I don't give altar calls. A guy. I love this brother. They left. So he's not here. It's not one of you. He said, preacher, I like your sermons, but your altar calls stink. I said, that's because I'm not calling. Listen, I'm not calling people to the altar. I'm not calling them to change geography. I'm issuing a Jesus call. Come to Jesus on the altar of your heart. And then verses 4 through 6. I guess we could stop there and give an altar call, couldn't we? (laughs) Nope, we got more to do. Look, verses 4 through 6. Next was the Feast of Booths, B-O-T-H-S. Tabernacles. This was so cool, and they did this. They gathered together, Feast of Trumpets. Then they had the Day of Atonement. They did the burnt offering thing all the way through. It doesn't say Day of Atonement. And then they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. What was that? It was the celebration of God's provision for the children of Israel in another exodus that happened a long time ago. Forty years in the wilderness... And God said, I want you to come apart. I want you to build little shacks or lean-tos or tents. I I don't want you you to live in your nice house. I want you to go to your tabernacle. That was probably easy for them to do right then. That's probably all they had. But I want you to live in your booth for a week to remember that I am the God who supplied for the needs of your forefathers. You remember what he did for them? What did he provide? Manna and water. Oh, does that point to someone that God has provided for us? Jesus himself said this. Your fathers, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives. Okay, Jesus is going to say something significant, present tense. Gives you the true bread, not bread that rots after a day. For The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You don't need to go out and build a shack to celebrate the fact that the bread of heaven has come to feed you, but you do need to remember it. I urge you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Not only that, he gave them water. And who was the water? Paul said this, there are so many verses that are just stunning When you first read them. This is why people read these things and they have a problem believing the Bible. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers all ate the same spiritual food. What was that? Manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Or they drank… Paul is going back to the wanderings in the wilderness, 40 years. They drank, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. All of this was done not because they thought it was a good idea, but look at it again, as it is written. It's according to the Word of God. What's the greatest problem that this church is face, this church faces today? What is it? Is it um, the Taliban? Is it ISIS? Is it COVID? Is it hurricanes? And, and I say this I'm, I'm going to kind of point over to our students, please, please hear this. The greatest threat we face today is that we will forget as it is written. You may not forget the whole thing, but you'll forget part of it. You'll forget the parts that are inconvenient. That's what the world is telling you to do. There's a church in Nashville. Grace Point Church. Somebody help me out. I've never been able to understand why they don't spell point correctly? Grace point. Not point like pointing to Jesus. Great grace point. P-O-I-N-T-E. Do you know what that word means? I can't do it. Anybody here do ballet stuff? Point is to stand on your toes. I, I... Well, that's an aside. I just, I don't get it. Grace, I guess if you're going to use the French, pois. (laughs) I don't know. Hey, I'm going to call them out because they did this publicly. And their pastor got up and he did this message and he said, you can't believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, I know you can't read all of that. So I'll read it for you, okay? It says, I'm not sure I can read it. <laughs> okay, what the Bible isn't. He, he, he had, this is a graphic from his PowerPoint. Okay, and he's telling his congregation, he's telling his students that are there, if there are any students that are there, we've got a problem because the Bible isn't the Word of God. The Bible isn't self-interpreting. The Bible isn't a science book. The Bible isn't an answer slash rule book. The Bible isn't inerrant or infallible. Either that guy's a liar or I am because I've told you that the Bible is all those things. What the Bible is, he says, product of community, isn't that sweet? A library of texts, make it up on the fly. Multivocal, there are so many words out, I don't even know what they mean. What does it mean, multivocal? A human response to God, here we go what man does to get to God. No, the whole thing is outside. He's come to us. I'll show you something in a minute. Living and dynamic. It is the once, it claims for itself to be the once for all word delivered to the saints. Beware of false prophets. Students, look at me. Beware of false prophets who are going to come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They've got an agenda. They do not want you to believe in the foundation of the word of God. They don't want us to believe it either. I I mentioned in the study in 2 Thessalonians what's going to happen before the Lord comes. Two things. A great apostasy, a great falling away, a great rebellion, and then the man of lawlessness. Now the thing about the great falling away, it's in the church. So churches that call themselves churches that fall away. And so that's why we come. And I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about minute by minute, Romans 12, 1, minute by minute, day by day, we come to worship according to the word. And only when we are obedient to establish worship. And I'm talking about for those now in this picture who've come out of Babylon, reestablish your worship. Let's go to the second point on your outline. The means of restoration focus on the temple foundation, the right foundation, which kind of extends some of the things we've been talking about. Look at this, starting in verse 7. So they gave money to the masons, the carpenters, food and drink, oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians uh, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant they they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. So, now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and Jeshua made a beginning with the rest of their kinsmen. They appointed Levites. I'm moving through this, verse 9. And they supervised the Jeshua, the Levites supervised the workmen in the house of God. Verse 10, they laid the foundation of the temple. And when they did, they celebrated. They came in their vestments. They sang. Now, this is interesting. Jonathan and I were talking about this. They sang responsively. Any of you remember singing out of hymnals? And back in the back of the Baptist hymnal, at least, there were responsive readings. So I would read one thing and then the congregation. Well, that's what they did. They sang responsively. That would be kind of interesting to see. And they laid the foundation of the temple. So, you work on the altar first, get worship right, then you lay the foundation of the temple. Oh, by the way, what does that point to? Just take a guess. Who does that point to? Jesus said, I'm telling you, and he was he and his disciples, apostles, were looking at the temple. He said, something greater than the temple is here. And it was him, and it is him. Paul says this. Do, now, the, first of all, he's the temple. There can, listen, there can never be a temple greater than Jesus. Jesus. Just just mark it down. Whatever your eschatology is, there can never be a temple greater than Jesus. But there's a a second point of application that Paul makes. It's also us. It's the church. Do you not know that you... Man, look at this. This building, it's a nice building. And it's comfortable and all that, but it's not talking about the building. It's talking about the people gathered. You. You us together, y'all is plural there, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all. We always individualize that. That's what it says. We are the temple of the living God. Man, every Sunday when you and I come, did you realize that? Meeting together with all of these other people, many of them you don't even know, that we are the temple of the living God. He lives in us. I saw this this weekend, and I was stunned. Talking about laying foundations. Um, Harvard University one of the premier institutions of higher learning in our country has just appointed hold on an atheist chaplain how can you do that is that even isn't that an oxymoron an atheist chaplain Now, let me go back. Uh, By the way, let let me remind you of, of this before I get there. We want the Lord to build a house because we'll labor in vain if we don't. And the only foundation is Jesus Christ. Let me go back to this, show you a graphic. Harvard University is the oldest educational institution of higher learning in the country. It predates the birth of our country by 140 years, 1636. On the left was their original seal and motto. And David, you've been there so many times. I remember you taking us there and seeing the signs above several different of the buildings. This is still there. Harvard University, now look what it says in the middle, that's Latin, veritas, very important, three different books, the top two, the tops of the books are in the right place, they're up. The bottom one, look at that, it's down, why? Harvard was founded by the Puritans to train preachers. And they wanted them to know that anything that you get of this world, yes, you work hard and you study hard, but divine revelation comes from the top down. It comes from God. And then to the sides, look what it says, Christo et Ecclesia. For Christ and the church. They changed it a while back, and this is how they could have an atheist chaplain. Veritas is in there. Whoops, look at the third book on the bottom. Where's the top? On the top. Their seal states their, their stance. They're no longer looking to God for divine revelation, and lo and behold, it's not for Christ. And his church its just learning for learning's sake. Is there any wonder when you're at one place and you begin personally or institutionally as a church and you begin to step back or you begin to not follow God, you can backslide and get into captivity. It's captivity that they have an atheist chaplain. Let's go on to the third thing. By the way, uh, that last verse I just went over real quick. Paul says, you know, we must build with gold and silver and precious stones and the day, the day of judgment will test the quality of each man's work. And maybe I just got it all wrong. I, sometimes I think, Lord, do I just, am I just all wet? Am I a dinosaur? Really? I ask that question and then I come back here and say, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. But guess what? The day will judge the quality of each man's work, whether an atheist chaplain or an old whatever fire-breathing Baptist who just believes God's Word. God help us. Let's go to the third one, last one, the result of restoration. The focus is on unity in worship. I want to say a couple of things. This is one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible, and, and for sure in the book of Ezra. Okay. Last part of verse 11. Got it? All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's households, old men, they had to be at least my, well, older than me, Old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, in all its glory, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house, which probably was very, very plain and ordinary compared to the house of Solomon. They wept when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Now watch what happened next. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Two applications then we're through. Christians who've lived a long time sometimes tend to remember the glory days. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you? Okay. I, I've heard it, not, not so much here, but I've heard it all the time, particularly in other churches where they have a preponderance of older people that have not been matured and disciplined through the word of God, And new things start happening. New foundations are laid. Young people come in and they're dressed differently and they look differently and they sing different songs and things like that. And sometimes older people look back at the former glory. And by the way, they probably just build on it. The good old days. Well, I remember the good old days in this church. I remember Could it be that there was at least a little bit of that happening? But could it be also that there are the younger Christians who are excited about living out what God is doing today? And they all come together in the church. Some are weeping and some are shouting. I I really think one of the great applications here is the unity of the sound that came out. They They couldn't even distinguish. And so here's my application. I may be stretching it, but I just think it's a necessary word. For those who might see the glory days and wish for those, for those who are younger and see what God is doing now, this is the glory that we've got And so I've shared this before about a lot of things. Don't judge and don't despise. Two ways. Don't judge and don't despise. Why? Because we want everybody to be nice. Because we want everybody to get along. That's not the motivating factor. Because we will all, young and old, whatever our station in the Christian life, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, young people, appreciate the wisdom of the older people so that you can learn. Not everything is bad. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Older people, same thing. Learn. Learn. Don't throw out the baby with the bath water. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that, that's just a word of, I said uh, th- this was a word of application. I hope I didn't stretch too much with that. Last thing though, here's the real key. And I'm going to go to one of the prophets that spoke during this time. He's going to come up about verse uh, chapter 6, 5 or 6. Haggai. And he said something. He said, well, this temple doesn't look like much, but I'm going to tell you something. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't know that he was talking about a physical building because I don't know that Herod's temple, that's what it became known as, Zerubbabel's temple became known as Herod's temple. I don't know that the outward glory was better than Solomon's. I don't think it was. I think he was looking at people who trust in him like these people who had slidden back and they'd come out of captivity. And there is a tendency for people who have backslidden and come out and you've had incredible loss. You still hurt. And you look back at a, and I'm talking about Christians, you look back at a former glory, whatever that was. A church, a position, a relationship, a family. I think this is a promise of God that you can begin again. I'm not going to say that you're going to recover whatever was lost, but I think you can hang on to the promise that if you will allow God to work a work in your life by trusting him, coming out of Babylon, reestablishing worship, building the strong foundations that the latter glory that God wants to do in your life, Christian, can be greater than the former glory. And I look around and see people for whom that is true. And I thank God. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray now that as we conclude our service, oh God, we've presented the gospel that we are sinners before a holy God. We got there by our own doing, we didn't need any help, we don't blame anyone. We take full responsibility, but we stand before you, a holy God, who's provided the way out of captivity to begin with, out of idolatry and into your presence, and even for those of us who've backslidden, you've provided a way to come to you once again to rebuild and to see the latter glory established. So, Father, whatever our situation is, I pray that you would help us now, those who do not know Jesus Christ, that they would repent of their sins, turn by faith to Jesus Christ. And those who need the help to move on with their walk with the Lord, oh, God, grant that today. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.